Hello, everybody. This is Ravi Gupta, the CEO of The Lost Debate and the co-host of The Lost Debate Show with Ricky. Uh, today, we're dropping a special episode. This is an episode of The Citizen Stewart Show, and this is a show that I co-host with Chris Stewart. We're both veterans of the education world, and every week, we're going to talk about issues affecting our kids, you know, everything from politics to school practice to cultural issues. And this is just a special show we have now at The Lost Debate. It has its own feed. So if you like this episode, go to The Citizen Stewart Show on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, if you're on this feed for our regular content, you know, that'll continue. This is just us giving you a preview of a new show that we're really excited about. Hey, friends, it's Citizen Stewart. What is on fire this week? We're here to talk about it. Welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we deep dive into the headlines and the stories that aren't being covered. Looking to shed some light on the dark forces affecting our schools and our democracy, I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart. I'm also the CEO of Brightbeam, a nonprofit network of activists fighting for educational opportunities and justice for every child. And with me is my co-host, Ravi Gupta, a former Obama staffer and superintendent of a network of charter schools in the South. How you doing, Ravi? You know, I'm pumped for this show, Chris. I've been waiting for this for a while. Uh, but before we do anything, you were in my city, New York City, this past week. How was it? Uh, how was the city or how was I what I was there for? Because the city is the same as it ever was. It was nice, No, I'm trying you know, to elicit <laughs> this like sort of get off my lawn mentality you have about New York City. You last time I talked to you, you were you were spewing some kind of Fox News, you know, New York City is unsafe and dirty type bullshit. So why don't we well, start with that? Is. It is post-apocalyptic in New York. Uh, everything's expensive and dirty. You know, whenever I come to New York, I say to myself, there's two types of people in the world. There's New York people and there's LA people. And I'm always reminded that I'm more a, of a West Coast person yeah. when I come to New York. But so other than that, it was, you know, soft. listen. Yeah. It, what? Yeah. <laughs> soft, yeah. I like things like trash not on the street. You know, it's just little things. It's little things about, you know, a civilization that I love. Yeah, well... I think it's getting cleaner-ish, but I think, <laughs> but the trash is the price for this sort of spontaneous, you know, serendipitous, you know, run-ins that you have with creative, dynamic people, which I imagine yeah, you don't get in, in suburban yeah. Minnesota. I imagine you don't run into too many dynamic, creative, young people over there. Listen, we're America. I don't know what you guys are. Uh, out where I live, we are Americans. We are strong, hardworking Americans. Things work. The trains run on time. Our lawns are well kept. Our houses yeah. look great. So there yeah, you go. Yeah, imagine it. you guys have great trains over there. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, you know, listen, uh, Amtrak. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're here to talk, Chris. So every episode for our listeners, uh, you know, you're a former school board member. I'm a former school principal and superintendent. We've been talking about kids in education for a long time. You're a parent. And uh, every episode, we're going to talk about three things. One thing mm -hmm. that makes us mad, one thing that makes us hopeful, and then one thing that makes us think. Let's start with what's making us mad. Chris, kick us off. So here's the thing. We've been hearing a lot recently about uh, teachers grooming students uh, to, uh, to abuse them. Uh, in multiple different ways. And mostly that's been seen as a bad faith right wing teacher bashing campaign, uh, which it is, you know, and I just want to be honest about that fact, you know, a lot of the teacher scare material that we're hearing is really kind of a, a bad faith campaign. But here's the thing, two things can be true. And it would be a it would be a mistake for the left and people on the left not to admit that public schools, American public schools do have a sexual abuse problem. As an example, uh, recently uh, in Los Angeles, they have paid out a $52 million settlement to kids who were sexually abused by a district wrestling coach, uh, victims of a former Sun Valley High School wrestling coach uh, who had been uh, uh, convicted of molesting nine children. They'll get $52 million in a settlement from a lawsuit that alleges that the district knew about prior sexual misconduct and did nothing about it, right? So when we're hearing about this grooming issue, it's terrible, right? But here's the problem. The problem is this isn't a new problem. It's the tip of the iceberg. It's been around. It's, a, it's, it's, it's open in plain sight. And if you go back to a Los Angeles Times article from, uh, from 2016, 
you'll see that the district has paid out $300,000. I'm sorry, let me take this back. $300 million over sexual That was your Austin cases, Powers right? moment so, right there. 300,000. Right? Yeah, right, oh right. <laughs> yeah. $1 million. No. <laughs> no, $300 million, right? We talk about schools being underfunded. So, so. That was by 2016. Since, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and they've paid out more since. There's been more cases since, even though they've made changes. Um, and nationally, I don't want to pick on California because this is a national problem. In 2016, USA, uh, USA Today did a deep dive on the problem. And they found teachers all across the country who had been either, they had resigned in their previous district due to sexual misconduct, um, or they had uh, lost their licenses and ended up teaching somewhere else in another state. And there's no national database. There's there's no kind of way of tracking the teachers. And anytime someone tries to pass a law to try and, and, and clamp down on this as an issue, there are people who literally come out to fight passing laws. Specifically, I'll give you one example. <laughs> Rhode Island had a law that they were going to make it illegal for teachers to have sex with kids. Just that simple. And if you think I'm lying, people look this up. And the Democrats said, why just pick on teachers? Why not firefighters? Why not everyone else? This feels like teacher bashing. <laughs> they were mm. trying to pass a law that says you can't have sex with students if you're a teacher, right? <laughs> And that was the response to it. And this is a national problem. So you want to talk about, you can hear it in my voice, talk about being animated. I am, it's disgusting, it's wrong, it's bad uh, in so many ways, and it's systemic. Well, Chris, let's play a little game here. I'm going to read you a quote, and I want you to tell me what this person's profession is, okay? This is a quote mm-hmm. uh, from a hearing. Quote, this is in response to a an attempt to pass a law that would uh, prohibit confidentiality agreements in these settlements, which is part of the issue. Because what happens is the teachers sign confidentiality agreements with the district, and they go to another district. And because it's confidential, the other district can't find out about it. In Connecticut, they were trying to pass a, a, a law, and I think they did, uh, prohibiting such agreements. But somebody uh, spoke up in one of these hearings. This is what they had to say. This will limit the ability of employees and employers from negotiating separation agreements that could potentially result in a flood of teacher termination hearings. What do you, who do you think this guy was uh, at this hearing? What do you think his <laughs> profession was? I'm going to take a wild guess and say maybe he worked for the union. Yep. This is uh, Jan <laughs> Hoshadel. Maybe Jan is, a, I can't say it's a guy or a girl, but uh, president of the union representing 15,000 Connecticut educators. What's amazing about some of the stats you're talking about, just going back to LA for a second, and you're right, it's a national issue. They have been gaslighting parents forever on this kind of stuff. So uh, there was this incident that that same 2016 uh, report in the LA Times that you're talking about. They talked about a couple of egregious cases where one case lawyers were claiming that a 14-year-old could consent to sex with an adult. Um, and then there was another one in which experts testified that a nine-year-old girl's low IQ meant that she couldn't suffer as much psychological damage from her multiple sexual assaults. I mean, it's absolutely appalling, right? And this is like, I, I'm a creature for people who are new to, know, new to this poly, uh, podcast. I have been a, a operative for democratic politics basically my entire adult life. I have worked in democratic politics. I share many of the same values of people on the left. But what is appalling to me is that we talk about things like qualified uh, immunity for police officers, right? Saying, oh, like we we should be able to sue police officers for misconduct, yada, yada, yada. Whereas nobody asks, where does this qualified immunity come from? Well, it comes from a lot of my brethren in the Democratic Party who qualified immunity is not specific to police officers. It has to do with all public employees and often the fiercest uh, defenders of public employer, employees and, the, and their ability to be incompetent or malicious uh, or predatory. It's so often my fellow people on the left are negotiating these carve-outs. Yeah, I think like, you know, big problem on the left and specifically with this being a union issue or a labor <laughs> issue is that labor sees most issues, most of every issue in terms of jobs. You know, they don't see it in terms of kind of professional responsibility. And, you know, just like that quote that you just read, I mean, what does the quote basically says, you know, you know, <laughs> we're going to see like, it, it's about the teachers and it's about their jobs and it's about uh, everything except for the kids. And, you know, that's that kind of makes sense, except for it doesn't make sense for the Democrats to 
tie their entire policy on things like this to labor. There should be some other thinkers within the Democratic Party to think just the optics of this is really bad. We also have to say, though, let's just be really clear. We're not saying that this problem is any better in non-unionized states where there aren't strong teachers unions fighting back and pushing. And it's not as if there aren't states where Republican governors are already trying to make it you know, possible to marry much younger. And by much younger, I mean like 15 and 14 or whatnot, right? Like is that America right? has, yeah, man. I mean, like America's kind of like off the hook when it comes to its sexual politics right now. And especially as it concerns youth. I mean, we're all over the map. We have people screaming from the mountaintops that we're trying to indoctrinate kids to become gay, to turn them gay, to like, you know, your daughter, we want to make your daughter be a boy, that sort of thing. Um, But at the same time, we're doing these other conflicting things like ignoring the fact that they really are. When Congress pulled together all of the experts to talk about this issue, they determined, they estimated that the number was 4.5 million students that were affected. And they also estimated that it was one in 10 students that in their lifetime would be the 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 subject of sexual misconduct uh, by a school staff member, right? Yeah, That's a lot of kids. That's like yeah. a really big problem. And that's a problem in red states and in blue states. It's a problem for the Republicans and the Democrats. It is. It isn't that. So, yeah, you're right. Like the USA Today investigation found that it just wasn't just unions, right? Like you could do a search and find for union in that article, which I may or may not have done. And you'll find plenty of <laughs> anecdotes about the unions, but you'll also find incompetence, right? That like some districts aren't even searching uh, available mm-hmm. databases to find out if people are on sex offender registries. That's just particularly a problem among private schools, right? Mm-hmm. Where they ha- they don't mm-hmm. have they often don't have the same kind of uh, requirements of public schools. So there's all sorts of issues there. This does remind me, Chris. Though, have you seen the Dahmer show on Netflix yet? I have uh, not watched Dahmer? it. It just feels too dark for me. It is no, creepy. I'm not trying to do it. But there was this moment. Speaking of unions, there's this guy. I. I probably going to mispronounce his name, but his name is John Balserzak. He was a police officer who responded to a young boy who was 14 years old who had escaped from Jeffrey Dahmer's apartment. You might know this story. The boy, mm-hmm. I think Dahmer had maybe drilled the kid's head already and drugged him, and the kid somehow escapes, right? Uh, these three women find him on the street, call the police. This guy, John Balserzak, responds, um, and he uh, brings the guy back to Dahmer's apartment over the protests of the women. He tells the women to, quote, shut the hell up, um, mm-hmm. is at least what one of the officers, whether it was him or somebody he was with, said. Um, they return him to Dahmer's apartment, which she was murdered there, obviously. Uh, approximately 10 minutes after the police left, there's this woman, Glenda Cleveland, uh, who is Dahmer's neighbor, called the police and was connected to Balserzak, who dismissed her concern and declined to take uh, her name or her niece or her daughter who were calling. Now, this guy was removed from the force and then reinstated because of the unions. One guess, Chris, do you know what happened to this guy? You know, it, it, was he sent off into exile? Was he shamed? What do you think happened to him? Uh, you know, I'm going to guess that maybe he even got an award of some sort. <laughs> he became the president of the Milwaukee Police Association. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah it's absolutely yeah. absurd. Like, yeah. but, but but it's not accidental. It's not accidental yeah. because what he represented was like th- this standard is for a lot of these unions is you go to the mattresses. Like you defend the most egregious case of misconduct because it shows the faithful that you're looking out for them. And mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. to me is disgusting. I'm sorry. Well, let's just say, you know, we can call that a disciplinary promotion. Uh, and it happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it happens in, yeah, failing up. Disciplinary promotions are actually quite popular in the United States. You can even become president one day after failing for your entire life. Right. So it's yeah. not, there's nothing unique to unions about that. I will say this, listen, because a lot of what you just said about unions, you know, my opinions have, have changed over the last couple of years about the utility and, and the use of unions just in general. You're getting soft on me. I know. Don't, I, know, I don't you, know. I'm you what you're about to say. I think you know, I'm getting hard on you, which is I'm getting hard on us that like to talk about the unions as if they don't serve a positive purpose too, right? Like you have some idiot, let's just talk about an education. In education, you have bad administrators and no one ever talks about it. We talk about bad teachers all the time. We don't talk about the fact that America does not know how to turn out good principles for instance, yep. and great school leaders. Like we have lots of people who uh, take over schools or, you know, become school leaders who have no business doing it. And then, you know, beneath them are like nine to 20 to maybe 30 teachers 
who are living beneath like some jackass who does who shouldn't be doing his job. And the only person that comes and shows up for those teachers at that time becomes the unions. Certainly not the media. Sometimes it's the parents, but not always. So who else comes like yeah. to their aid and to their defense, right? So that might sound soft to former, you. Let me defend my, you know, so, my fellow school yeah. principals there for a second, yeah, because yeah. my counterparts in the district school weren't given the tools to do their jobs. I was because I ran a charter Ooh, school. You sound soft on they, you. Sound soft on them right now. That sounds well, like an excuse. <laughs> well, let me tell you, Chris, go start a restaurant. You can't hire and fire yeah. your own staff. You can't pick what's on the the menu. You can't set your own hours. You can't even get feedback to your staff. What kind of restaurant are you going to run? That's what it's like being a principal in a district school. Uh, you know, but I do agree that the unions play a okay, key role. Okay, but let's just stop for a second. You ran very good. You ran like out of the out of the gate like uh, great schools that got results, okay? So let's just stop there for a second. Oh, stop, but go on. But stop, yeah. but keep going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you are aware you are aware of the fact that that's not the common story with everybody, every one of your peers, right? Even those who aren't in the district. Like yeah. your schools outperformed, and by outperform that means you actually were ahead of other people, right? You did, yeah. Better. Well, well, and no. I agree. And there's a whole we'll talk about this, I'm sure, in many episodes. Like the whole history of teachers unions is fascinating. Hal Shanker was defending teachers at a time when they were making less than uh, parking attendant, uh, mm-hmm. garage parking mm-hmm. attendants, and like it was very sexist. The profession. I mean, the the unions played a critical role, and I wouldn't necessarily want to do away with them. I just think that mm-hmm. they've gone too far. But if we're you know speaking of high performance schools, let's talk about something I'm hopeful for. Jay Caspian okay. Kang uh, in The New Yorker. Love this guy. I've never met him, but he he writes, I think, he doesn't seem to me like much of an ideologue, but he, uh, he writes a lot about education issues and cultural issues. And he wrote this piece in The New Yorker recently called Why Oakland Parents Are Flocking to a Chinese Immersion School. And I see your Oakland hat that you got on right now. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he talks about the Yuming Charter School in Oakland. I had never mm-hmm. heard about the school. Uh, back in the day when I was starting my first school, I used to go to Oakland a lot, and they, they had a couple interesting things happening there at the time. But this school is killing it. This is a school that in the 2018-2019 school year, which is a Chinese immersion school with not mm-hmm. all Chinese mm-hmm. people in it. Like it has a mixture uh, of students in it. Um, 94% of their students in third through eighth grade met or exceeded the standards on the English language and literacy section of California's test compared to just 50% pass rate statewide. And, you know, the numbers are lower in Oakland Unified, uh, even more stark disparities in math. And so what I find fascinating about this school is that it is killing it on literacy in English, but it's a Chinese immersion school. And, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. Kang's piece is fascinating because I, I have one parent who's a an Asian immigrant and in my case, an Indian immigrant. And what, what, what he talks about, Kang, is the sort of symmetry between Catholic school, which I grew up in in a neighborhood where there's a lot of Catholic schools, which as Kang describes is like the sort of midway point between traditional public schools, which in my neighborhood was a disaster, um, and the fancy private schools, which were inaccessible to my parents. So my mom, I went to the traditional public school up through middle school. And then in ninth grade, my mom took me out of the, the zone public high school and put me into Catholic school, which was $400 a month at the time, which is very affordable, mm. right? That's very uh, affordable, yeah. Kind of like what the charter schools have become now, which charter schools are free, but it, they're kind of like that place for people to find an alternative option the way Catholic schools were. Uh as you read this piece, like, is this, I know you're constantly trying to push the charter school sector to do things more bold, more innovative. Does this meet a certain bar for you or are you just like, oh yeah, it's just Chinese immersion. It's not that fancy. <laughs> uh, well, I would never say anything so Asian hateful as like, oh, it's just Chinese immersion. But, uh, you know, you could join I the chorus that- <laughs> of liberals now who've been <laughs> ripping Asians. <laughs> yeah, no, I no, I wouldn't say that at all. So first of all, I uh, we have a charter school like this in Minneapolis in the Twin Cities, and I've been fascinated for years 
that uh, it gets a diverse population that actually comes in. Uh, we started a Hmong school in Minneapolis, and there were black kids in there, and I was always really interested in, like, you know, tell me about your parents. <laughs> like, like you know, um, just interested in, like, you know, who enrolls their kid in a school where it's going to be so different like that with a different language. And it was interesting. It was people who had an open mind. They wanted something safer. They wanted a, a calmer, more quiet environment, and they wanted success. They actually could see, you know, something really good is going on in that school. So when I read this, I really felt the same way. Like it makes perfect sense to me why it would be a draw. And the fact that they're getting the outcomes, just stop there. Just the bottom yeah. line. Like in all these, we, see, we hear so many feel-good stories in life or whatnot. Just get to the bottom line. How are the kids doing? You know, are they like, are the outcomes good? Are these kids on track for a better life? Are they going to, you know, uh, are they going to get, uh, you know, algebra in eighth grade to set them up for high school and is high school going to set them up for college? Right. And the answer is yes in this case. So like, I don't need all of the commentary about immigrants and what immigrants do differently oh, see, that's, and all that. Me, I then, love that shit. I well, that I mean, shit. but then yeah. you start getting into some weird kind of do you start getting into some weird kind of stereotypes that don't work for me when you do that? Right. Like, so I don't need all that. Just tell me how the kids are doing. Is it working? If it is cool, we can, we can jump off with that as a point and I'll be supportive. I don't need to like, you know, for it to become like an immigrant contest though, and a cultural values contest and tiger moms versus, you know, lax Americans or any of that yeah. stuff. Like, well, let's know. go there for a second because th that is a big part of this piece. And yeah. I'm with you that there is a danger zone that we get into when we talk about these stereotypes, but there is a such thing as culture, right? And, and I think I can only speak to my culture because I think Asian is a broad brush. I, I spoke recently to this professor at Harvard Law School named Ginny Suk Gerson, who's written a lot about the affirmative action debate as it relates to Asian Americans. And we were talking about how she and I are, we both circled the same uh, bubble uh, and fill in the same bubble on applications and whatnot, or at least back when we were going to school. I think there are more bubbles now. But we paint with this broad brush, which is Asian American. And in certain cases, it would be like immigrant, right? And those are reductive. But I can speak to the fact that, you know, Amy Chu is my professor in law school, the Tiger Mom, Arthur, and my dad was an Indian immigrant. And what she wrote about in terms of the pressure she put on her kids, even though my dad left when I was in middle school, it still stuck with me this sort of sense that he escaped extreme poverty in India. And the reason why he was able to escape extreme poverty in India is because they had a standardized test that my dad did really well on and that provided a certain level of objectivity and predictability to my father that allowed him to go from basically the poorest place on earth, which is Uttar Pradesh in India, uh, to the United States as a doctor. And so to, to me, he taught me go for the predictable gain, right? Which to a lot of us who have parents like that, and it could be Nigerian parents, it could be Indian parents, or it could be somebody who escaped poverty in the American South using similar tools. If your parent escapes poverty that way, they teach you a certain ethic, which is go for the predictable objective career, medicine, engineering, yada, 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 and kill that test, get the A, and do it at all costs. And that is something that I think is under attack right now uh, from the American left and that I'm very suspicious of those attacks from people like Ibram mm -hmm, Kendi mm -hmm. because to me, that is that is the only predictable ladder to success that a lot of people know in this country and that you know whether they get here as immigrants or they've ascended the ladder from wherever they come from within this country. And that to me is something he speaks to here that I that I'm like a big amen on, you know? Yeah, you know, so here's the thing that I think is the danger, you know, uh, it's, if it were just to say that immigrants have something, you know, special or unique about them, great. That's awesome. You know, uh, I'm all for diversity and difference. When it becomes an anti-black thing of, well, wait a second now, these people are poor too, just like you are, so why aren't your people uh, doing better well, it's because your culture is bad and you don't value education and you don't know, like, listen, the model minority myth on one side and the anti-blackness on the other side of that argument actually just doesn't work for me, right? Uh, we have an entire black middle class that uh, is born out of achievement and having str striven to do better or strive to do better, whatever, um, than, than they were doing for generations. Actually, all of the 
enjoyment that that immigrants have of of rights in this country come out of the civil rights movement that we actually forced on this country. And when that happened, one of the things that came out of that was the Immigration Act. And the Immigration Act opened the door for floods of Asians to come in, but there were some prerequisites. And if you look at who actually came, it, the story gets a little bit more complicated, right? It's not fair to judge a kid in East Oakland or West Oakland who's got parents who have been in multi-generational poverty in the United States against uh, an Asian family that were doctors in their own country but are driving a cab in this country, right? That's actually not the same thing, right? And and actually, that's a big percentage of what we call Asian. Now, I heard you just say a second ago also that when we say Asian, we're using a broad brush, Man, we're using a really broad brush because I think what most people are thinking when they say Asians do better, they're thinking about Japanese and Chinese. They're not thinking about the Hmong. They're not thinking about Filipinos necessarily. They're not thinking about whole groups of Asian associated people that are not actually statistically doing better than the Chinese or the Japanese or, or whites. They're actually having struggles like everybody else. So I think this you know, yes, you have lots of Indian Americans who immigrated here, many of them with educations from their previous country before they came here. They were amongst the top in the country that they came from, even if they're low low income when they get here, right? Yeah. It's just not the same population. So it doesn't make sense. It makes sense to celebrate them. It doesn't make sense to use them as a bully uh, against why blacks haven't gotten far, further than they are. Yeah, but that last argument, that doesn't show up in Kang's piece, and it certainly isn't my philosophy, obviously, that, like, Asians need to be celebrated and that blacks, like, like there's their model minority that I'm going to juxtapose to black Americans or Hispanic Americans, et cetera. I actually think there's a symmetry to the up ladders that my father had and what I wanted for my kids in North Nashville. And actually, when we announced my high school, I, I at our announcement of our high school, I talked about how my father went from the bottom to the top because of a lot of the same principles and systems that I defend in this country, in the United States, that my kids have used in North Nashville and will continue to use if we could protect them. Things like standardized tests and the predictability of those things. Things like an achievement-oriented culture. Things like an aspirational, positive vision that says, no matter all the obstacles in front of you, whether it was my dad on a dirt floor in India under a tree learning, or my kids in North Nashville where, the highest, where we had the highest rate of incarceration of black males in the country, and, a less than, and fewer than 1% of kids in the zone high school were getting a college-ready ACT, despite the odds and despite how insurmountable they are, I'm going to push you and inspire you just like my grandfather did to my dad to overcome those obstacles. And and, and I'm not going to use those obstacles as an excuse, even though one could reasonably do so, right? Like that ethic is what we brought, right? And I think it works for kids here. And I think it worked for my dad. And I think there's a symmetry, you know, instead of trying to compare kids to each other saying, why can't you be like that? To be like, hey, let's just it actually works for kids, like to actually hold mm -hmm, the bar mm -hmm. high and and help them and nurture them to get over that bar, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. No, I think it makes perfect sense. As long as, you know, listen, as long as it's not parachuting in examples to people that do come from an achievement culture, which I believe that African-Americans do come from an achievement culture, we've achieved more than anyone in this country. If, you, if, if having rights... Uh, and having a country that actually lives up to its creed and its constitution is any marker. I'd say we're we're achievement-based culture. So I think our kids, black kids specifically, don't need a foreign example. I think they need uh, people who understand them, who can educate, who know how to teach and know how to run a school and know how to use scope and sequence and time and budgets and staff and pedagogy and curriculum to help kids learn wherever they come from. Cool. Like, like yeah. that's, that's all, that's all it really takes. And in my mind, that's all it really takes. Yeah. And I think like you, you use whatever examples you have, right? Whichever is authentic to you. You know, if I were to go into North Nashville and be like, I understand you, <laughs> I, think I, would be, I think I would be laughed. I think I'd be laughed out of there. But what I can say is, look, I'm here, you know, I'm raising my hand saying I'm here to play a part and I can only tell you what I know and hope that it in some way rhymes with something that you know. And it was a beautiful thing. It was a beautiful thing while it, while it lasted, you know? But it was a beautiful thing while it lasted. And I think, you know, you don't want to be the teacher who comes in 
and tries to pretend like you've got more in common with your students than you do. <laughs> if that makes any you sense. Mean you don't want to like come in and do hip hop dance and like like go, go through Wu-Tang lyrics with your students and stuff. Like, we did have a breakdancing club that I used to run. But let's <laughs> but but shout out to Kang. Love the piece. Hopefully we'll have him on this pod at some point. Uh, I do also want to shout him out for what I think was a very measured description of the charter school debate in The New Yorker where he was basically like, mm-hmm, look, mm-hmm. he was like, this is a distraction. And he had this really good paragraph where he said, parents will go to the school that is excellent no matter what the hell you call it. Mm-hmm, whether it's the mm-hmm. whether it's to move to the suburbs to find the great school, whether it's to access that Catholic school, whether it's to go to that magnet school, whether it's that charter school, or if it's just a zone public school down the street from them, you can call it whatever you want. You could point fingers, we could throw tomatoes, but the parents are gonna go to the good school. And I really like that. Let me just say this too. Like the good takeaways that I had from this story are what you just said, you know, parents, there's a need. There's a desire. Parents do want to get their kids out of, stop them from being stuck, stuck in places where they know for a fact for generations haven't done well. The Catholic schools, I'm glad he called that out for a long period of time. That was affordable for a lot of people. And that was a place to put your kids where you knew the education was going to be safe. It was going to be orderly. It was going to be more consistent. And you didn't have to worry about it while you were at school. I think people do too little thinking about the, the fears of parents and the worries of parents. There are times you know you're working a crap job and you know that your kids are on track for doing what you're doing and your greatest desperation is to stop that crap from happening again, like to somebody else, to your child. Someone opens a door and throws a uniform on your kid and says, hey, our kids are succeeding. Man, you could call it what you want. You could call it a charter, a private school. You could call it goat cheese. You could call it whatever you want to call it. There's going to be a demand. There's going to be like a wait list to get into that. So I'm glad he called out that this isn't new. This isn't like some recent debate. We have entire politicians who are against charter schools and against school, you know, choice, school options, whatever you want to call it, who themselves were educated in exactly the way that they're against right now. Right. How and many, sending their kids uh, to those schools. Send their kids. How many yeah. Catholic school graduates actually grew up to be Irish politicians, right? <laughs> on, the de- on the Democratic side, right? who actually themselves, how many are president right now who sent their kids to, you know, Irish Catholic people who sent their kids to private schools who are against that option for America's most disenfranchised? So we've talked about something that we hate. We've talked about something that makes us hopeful. What is making you think, Chris? Okay, so there's a piece that we published at Education Post called uh, Why It's Time to Talk About Equity and Excellence. It's a piece written by Jessica Levin, and she reached out to me because she said, this is an important conversation I think we need to be having, but I think people are afraid to have it. I was like, Juice, tell me more. What do you mean? And it's this idea that we have focused so much on equity and, uh, and so much on the needs of kids that are not performing at high levels that we've kind of left the high performers out to dry. That's the frame of the conversation. Now she has she breaks it down to three part a three part argument, but that's the frame. Yep. And right away, like my antennas went up, like I like you know oh god I just you know I couldn't get with it. So she said, well listen, this, maybe we could model the discussion that I want to have. You don't agree with me on everything, so you write a piece in rebuttal, and I've been having a hard time writing that rebuttal piece. Well, work it out a for little me. bit. Flummoxed. Work it so. out. Let's work it out here. Let's go through her questions. Okay, uh, go ahead. So her first question is, are we over-focusing on low-performing students at the expense of our high achievers? Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. What is her argument here, Chris? And and you it, feels, it sounds to me like you have a instinctual negative reaction to this overall argument. Let's focus mm-hmm. it on this point. Like, what does she mean by over-focusing on low-performing students? Because one could, there's some people listening to this who could be like, I don't hear a lot about low-performing students. I hear wherever I live, it's the magnet schools for the high achievers or the private schools or the blue ribbon this or the scholarship for that and the awards at graduation for this person. Yeah, I think Jessica's fear, to be fair, fair to her, I think her fear is really that we are cutting off tracking in ways that's Um, making the high performers sit through things that they sit through classes that's beneath them, you know, sit through lessons and whatnot, because we're doing things like uh, honors for all, 
rather than honors for the kids that, you know, uh, used to traditionally qualify for honors because we're attacking things like stuyvesant in uh, the entry requirements into specialized programs for kids that score high on tests. Um, so those are ways in which she thinks that we're cutting off avenues of the gifted and high performers to, to educational opportunities that they need or that they want. Um, and we're doing it in the name of equity. We're doing it because we're trying to raise the scores of everybody else, right? My problem with that is I think the frame's all wrong. I think you could make an argument that we need to do better for kids at every level to make sure that they're getting grade level work and that they're getting grade level opportunities that they're prepared for, that they are uh, ready for. So you could write a whole piece about high performing kids and what they need without having to make it in contrast to something else. It's the contrast that makes me suspicious. When you say, when you say we need to do more for our high-performing kids, cool. Okay, uh, we need to, we, the reason we're not doing more for our high-performing kids is because we're spending too much time thinking about those other kids. Wait, what? What? Wait. Like you had me before you got to that second part. I agree. Right? Yeah, like, I, know. I'm, I'm with you on this. I, I do think we need to do more for our high-performing kids, and especially the way she frames it is high-performing kids who come from high-poverty areas, often overlooked. I saw this mm -hmm. in my schools. Mm -hmm. Parents mm -hmm. don't have a lot of options. Often they're overlooked in whatever the magnet selection process is. Usually there's lip service paid by the private schools to get scholarships for those kids. And so they wind up going to your charter school. So I think what her audience is people like me who ran charter schools. And they're saying, all right, you're 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 framing it. And this is true of our school for sure. Every school I've run mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. geared towards the parent whose kid is two grade levels behind, which was the average level that a parent was sending their kids to our fifth grade. They were on average two grade levels behind. But there were a subset of those kids who came through the doors. One of them works for me today, Elias Lukes, a, a student, my first student at Nashville Prep works wow. for Lost Debate. Wow. And he was one of our high performers. He was reading yeah. at a high school level while some kids were coming at the fifth grade level with him who could not read. And so mm -hmm. the reality she's talking about is real because if you put, you know, one of my students, I won't name a name, uh, couldn't read in the fifth grade. And Elias Lucas is That's a good reading. reason not to name him. <laughs> yeah. Well, he yeah. can read now. He actually would be okay, fine. Good. I just good. haven't talked yeah. to him. He's very proud. Yeah. He, he actually, and shout out to to Brooke Allen, one of our uh, teachers that year, who leveled a book uh, of Charlotte's Web, created mm. her own mm -hmm. leveled version of it, probably violated all kinds of copyright, to, <laughs> to create a leveled version of Charlotte's Web so that she could teach that student alongside other students uh, in the class. Now, it would be it would be tough to put Elias next to that student in every class because mm -hmm. Elias would get bored or that other student would be totally confused by whatever material Elias is lacking. So the need for differentiation, which she talks about in this piece, is real. I do think you can you can structure a day so that you have some, moments when the kids are together and even learning together in a lot of cases, and then other moments when you have to yield to the demands of differentiation. And I think that is a very tough trade-off that every well-intentioned educator struggles with every single day. Yeah. So she asked, are we chipping away at expectations and rigor more broadly to narrow achievement gaps? There is a reason to believe parents, policymakers, and the public, including those committed to equity, are worried this is the case, but fear saying so openly, and they are right. Speaking uh, up on such sensitive topics could earn them the label anti-equity or even racist. And actually, I don't think you're her audience. Her audience are uh, centrist white progressives who are The Robin D'Angelo crowd. Yeah. No, no, the white fragility no, no. people, no. No, more like the San Francisco recall people. The uh, I vote Democrat, but I will take my kids out of schools if you don't give me what I want, and I want gifted and talented. Well, I, 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 sign yeah, me up so, for so, this so, San so. Francisco recall. Yeah, As you yeah. know, I was a big proponent of that. That, yeah, that was yeah. the worst school Whatever. board. In I did an episode. It's it's about not the how best the school board in the world now. Let's just put it that way. In America. <laughs> Worst yeah, and it's not actually much better now after the recall. It's not I'm like poor anybody listening to this to interview. I interviewed the chair yeah. at the time who was recalled yeah. and I I Wacky. 
you find me anybody who would want to send their kid to a school that that woman was running insane. Yeah, yeah. But listen, I'm not going to disagree because I gave them a lot of heat. I'm just going to tell you right now, it's no different right now. Actually, they've been recalled and the board is as every bit as wacky as it was. It's got more stuff going on and intrigue going on. But but to the point, though, that she's making is these parents are going to at some point, they don't want to speak up because they don't want to be seen as racist or talking about the other kids, which tells you right now that if race is an issue, it's not just about high performing kids. It's also about families of different colors, right? So there's that. And they're, they're, they're going to do this social extortion that the piece basically says, if I don't get what I want, they're going to silently walk out of school districts and schools are going to lose more kids. So they should start kicking out some goodies, including tracking and uh, exclusive classrooms for these high performing kids, which every school district in America has these secret places where they put these kids in buildings where they get better treatment, and whatnot, as a way as an inducement to keep upper middle class families in their districts. And a lot of times it's done through magnets, which is why charter schools exist, because there needs to be a, a place for everybody else, like just your selective magnets. I mean, Stuyvesant is a so called public school that uh, that let in seven black kids out of a thousand in New York, in your city, that is supposed to be the world city where kids, where, where there's people from everywhere. They got it. They got exactly seven black kids ready for a choice position like that. There's a teacher at Stuyvesant who can't get enough of dissing Success Academy and charter schools for being selective. And he's working at a magnet school that let in seven black students in the city of New York, right? There's yeah. something deeply wrong with that equation. I, I'm with you that holding the district hostage isn't the right strategy here and it's not fair. But there are also genuine and I think good faith arguments on behalf of differentiation. Right, so the the answer can't necessarily be all right. No differentiation, because I do think yeah, that no, absolutely not. No, because like at some point, yeah. kids graduate twelfth grade. Some kids are going to Harvard. But but, some kids aren't. But wait going a second now, Robbie. Differentiation, differentiation is not what they're asking for because there's and in some cases they're saying that's not really possible. They literally need exclusive environments because differentiation has be, has proven to be very hard for teachers. Like it's proven to be very hard for educators to do. Some believe you can't do it really actually in a classroom. I do I do think you can, but I think we can save that for another episode. I have all sorts of ideas on this, some of which she tips her hat towards. But this does dovetail when you talk about the Stuyvesant reforms and you talk about Thomas Jefferson High School or what happened in San Francisco, this does get dicey because it's this this rhymes with our last segment because often in the middle of this debate are Asian American families. And what Thomas Jefferson High School in Fairfax when they reformed that policy, this was the rare moment when the school board in Fairfax stated their intentions. And in text messages between school board members, uh, this is what Stella Pekarsky, who is the school board chair, said, quote, the Asians hate us. She admitted that the process would, quote, kick out Asians. The school board member that she was texting with said, quote, there has been an anti-Asian feel around some of this. Hate to say it, lol. Same school board member. They're discriminated against in the process too, meaning Asian Americans. Now, the that San Francisco school board that you talked about, it's vice chair called Asians. This is an elected official in the, in the city of San Francisco called Asians the house N-word and then refused to apply, uh, apologize for it. Meanwhile, they wouldn't work with a reopening consultant when they were dragging their feet on school reopenings because why? Because that reopening consultant had previously worked with charter schools. So somehow somebody who had worked with charter schools in the past doesn't pass a purity test, but you can call uh, Asians racial slurs. And so I think- Well, this well I just want to be clear. Nobody ever reported what the Asian community called her before she said that and the reason that she said that. So, I mean, if we're being fair, like, you know, we can't- Yeah, but Asian we, community we can't, like, like, is- you know, so. But yeah. you don't believe, yeah. I don't think yeah. you believe that the quote unquote Asian community said anything to her. If some Asian said No, no, said I, be I believe her, that San Francisco is a very uh, specific local microcosm of a very specific set of politics that doesn't lend itself to national understanding. If you don't live in San Francisco and understand the who's who and who's been displaced and wh how the population has changed and moved and who's moved in and who's moved out, all that, you've got the wrong story. 
Like, and, like it's, it doesn't make any sense for me in Minnesota to like look at San Francisco and just go, oh, they're wacky there without doing some investigation of how the politics came to be. And the person you're talking about is somebody I went to battle with. She called me all kinds of names, man. She like, like her and I had like a, a epic Twitter battle. And it was interesting seeing her get caught up in her own stuff in her own city. But, you know, as a fair observer of politics, I was able to see all sides. I was was able to see that they have some very specific politics in San Francisco. Hers aren't mine. Like, she's totally anti-everything I'm about, really, to be very honest with you. So Yeah. um, Well, you know, call me old-fashioned. Calling any group of people the house N-word is wrong to me, no matter what your history is. You know? I mean, we can call black people all kinds of stuff. We just can't call anyone else anything. Well, not like, there's we. There's no real problem until I, you call other people's well, stuff, you know. Well, you're, I think you're setting <laughs> so, so. a standard that you and I don't believe in. I don't do that, you know. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I would hope. I don't, I don't know, call. Robbie. I've got my suspicions about you. Well, we got time to figure that out. Okay. Well, yeah. they, now that the heat's turned up, let's let's actually simmer it wait. Down. Let me say Wait's one last thing on that. I do want to yeah. say because I know we got a, a transition to move on, but let me just say this. The the uh, the purpose of a magnet school is to create an opportunity for uh, people of different backgrounds to actually school together and get along. That's the traditional uh, reason for there to be a magnet school. Using a test only as the only way to get admittance into uh, to great opportunities for education actually works for you if you're the one, if you think that you have an advantage on that test. Of course, you're going to fight for that to be the only criteria to get into a school. The way that Bush handled this in Texas when all this affirmative action stuff ha- happened was he said, okay, well, listen, we need a middle ground because he's not for, for affirmative action. Um, but he basically, the Texas compromise, which was everybody from high schools, uh, any high school that's in the top 5% gets admittance into the state colleges, right? So that means whatever, because, you know, you come from wildly different schools in Texas. If you made it just a test only thing, that's just an automatic kind of advantage for one group of people. It's not an automatic invention if the uh, automatic advantage, if the top kids at every school get an equal kind of like uh, uh, seat. So if I ask you, is it okay for a school to become 90% all Asian on a test only basis of criteria for entrance when there are a lot of black kids that qualify to get in, but it's just that they're overrun by a numbers game. They're qualified to be there. They, it's not like they're unqualified. It's not like they haven't passed the test to get to the highest level to be there. It's just it becomes a hunger games of seats at some point. And if you're okay with it becoming 90% Asian or 90% white based on one point of criteria, then you're against the, put, the, the Bush kind of common sense way to make sure that everybody gets access to the school. Yeah, I do think that st- using Stuyvesant as an example, the test itself to me is not the problem as the criteria. It's the fact that we're not having all the kids have access to the preparation or even take the test. Like a very small subset of the city even takes the test. And I think that's a big problem. My problem with these geographic preferences that Bush created is that they were actually pioneered in the 1920s and 1930s when too many Jewish kids, quote unquote, were getting into Ivy League schools. And so what they did is they created this category called sparse country, where they decided, all right, we're going to create geographic diversity, which that innovation came from then. It was born out of anti-Semitism. And now it's being used against Asian American families when they apply to Ivy League schools. God, I disagree with that. (laughs) And they're pitting... They're yeah. pitting different minority groups against each other while keeping legacy students, for example, which I think is that's predominantly a white. Fallacy, and you're an attorney. You went to law school. Here's well, the, that's, I, a, that's a that's a genetic fallacy in a way. It's like like when people use uh, that same thinking around, against standardized testing. Standardized testing today is not eugenics. Like so, when Kendi says. Well, my problem with it is that, you know, years ago it was used against Jews and blacks as a way to not like, you know, admit them or whatever. Well, that's not what standardized testing is today. Right. Well, you, but and, the, the same you know, argument would go for Bush, right? Like you were talking about Bush in a different context that wouldn't necessarily transfer to how it was implemented in Stuyvesant, for example. But like what I'm saying well, is, could. I, I'm could. not saying in it's eugenics. And and actually, I have something coming out next this coming Sunday, so this is a good plug for it. I actually have a, an hour long episode where I look at the issue of Harvard, and my point isn't that it's some kind of like 
argument by association to be like, hey, you know, Isaac Newton discovered gravity and Isaac Newton was a racist, therefore gravity's racist. That's not the argument I'm making. <laughs> uh, I'm saying Harvard itself invented yeah. the holistic admissions process so it could do some screwed up things. It continued it and then continued to screwed up things basically throughout its history. Now, what those screwed up things were changed, but even the Brandeis Institute, for example, in an amicus brief to the Supreme Court during this case that, that's in front of the Supreme Court next week, argues that they basically turned around and are doing the very same type of moves. But okay, I have a whole so thing on that. And then you can I know we got to wrap this, well, and I love yeah. your plug, and I know we got to wrap on this. I will say this. In Jessica's argument, she is saying that kids of color, including black kids that are high achieving, are being left behind because of our over-focus on equity. My response to her on that point is that there are bright black kids in New York who qualify to get into Stuyvesant and should be there, but they are not getting in because we are using a single standard that we are calling meritocracy. And those black kids are not exactly the same kind of poverty as the Asian kids that are getting in. It's, it's silly to say that it's an exact match for match like the same backgrounds. This, they're not. So there are bright black and brown kids in New York that actually do qualify to be there and to get in, and they're not getting in. And I think everybody's okay with it if that school becomes 90% Asian. And ask yourself where a lot of those families come from and their backgrounds or whatnot. It is not a match. It's not equality. It's not meritocracy. It's none of those things. It's a difference of, of, uh, of advantages. And there are black kids that aren't getting in who actually qualify, should be there. And that's the bottom line. And there should be more than seven out of a thousand kids admitted. You know? Well, we're giving you the final word on this one. We were going to talk about Abbott Elementary on this episode, but I think we could save it for next week. There's an episode where we talk <laughs> about charter schools. And yeah. so I'll use this as a teaser for next week's episode. There's an episode from September 28th. It's uh, called Wrong Delivery. I watched on the ABC website without even having any kind of account. So you could do it for free, I think. Yeah. So we're going to talk about that next week and a bunch of other substantive issues. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, we have other podcasts, Lost Debate Network. I plugged uh, an episode on affirmative action, which will be coming out next Sunday. And I think, Chris, you could probably listen to it and critique me next week. We'd have a little debate because I think you're going to find a lot to hate in that episode. Oof. So I look forward to that. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, uh, I'm excited to be a new member of the Lost Debate Network and have my newly minted uh, Citizen Stewart show here on the Lost Debate Network because I feel like we're going to have lots to debate and it's not going to the debate's not going to get lost the debate's going to get found in this in in this show man it's going to happen uh, so I appreciate it you know Education America is a work in progress we always have a lot to say about it uh, half the time we're doing it with too little information and on this show we want to make sure that folks have kind of a well-rounded view of what's actually taking place because the schools belong to all of us we all have a vested interest in them working well so. For everybody listening, please join us every Tuesday for The Citizen Stewart Show. Come back, share it with friends, uh, tell other people that it's the best thing that ever happened to you and that you've never experienced such brilliant uh, banter and, and uh, information as this show. Uh, and I just appreciate you for it. <laughs>